Our scripture lesson comes from 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 23. Hear now the word of our God from 1 Samuel, chapter 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of, of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh? on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Yeshimon. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information, then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Yeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. 
Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. We're coming to the, we're approaching the very center of the, what I'm nicknaming, the adventures of David. Because there's actually, there's actually a central story in this book, in terms of this part of the book where, where David's on the run. And that'll be next time when we look at the story of Abigail and the death of, of Nabal. And that central story is surrounded by two different instances where Saul is quite literally in David's hands. David could have struck him down and did not. And then... On the, we've already seen previously the story of David in the Judean wilderness, and then after the two episodes with Saul, after 
we'll, we'll see David in the land of the Philistines. And of course, the adventures of David had begun with the death of Goliath and will end with the death of Saul. And in these central episodes, we are hearing of what will happen to all of David's enemies. David's enemies will be destroyed, not because of David's might and power, but because the Lord was with David. It's in spite of the fact that David is the Lord's anointed, David is, is, he said, he will be king. And yet, it's not his military might that gives him the victory. It's his faith and trust in the Lord. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That was true for David. It was most powerfully true for our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is true for us as well. Wait upon the Lord, and he will accomplish his purposes for you. That's very much what we sang in Psalm 57 earlier, that when God, it's, it's God who will deliver you at his time. Now, it's also important, uh, sometimes when we talk about waiting on the Lord, uh, it's okay, so what do we do while we're waiting on the Lord? Uh, a friend of mine recently told me, he said, you know, you need to stand still and see the salvation of your God, quoting from Exodus 14, 14. What did it mean for Israel to stand still and see the salvation of their God? Well, I mean, they're there at the Red Sea. They're trapped by the Egyptian army. And it looks like they're all going to die. And God says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, shortly thereafter, the Red Sea parts, and there's now a way across the sea. Now, if anybody in Israel had at that time said, stand still and see the salvation of your God, everybody would have looked at him and said, no, at this point we start walking. At this point, we, we, we can see it. And we see exactly where it is, and that's where we need to be going right now. You see, this is the moment that David's men think that they see. Stand still and see the salvation of your God. You've been standing still. You've been waiting. You're, and now here's the day. Here's the moment. It's time. See, he's right there. All you got to do is run that sword through him, and he's dead. Stand still and see the salvation of your God. Why doesn't David do it? Why doesn't he take the obvious moment? Well, let's take a look at our text, because actually what we're seeing in these chapters, David understands who he is and where he is in the story. And you see, for all of us, this is what's important for us. Who are you and where are you in the story? David finds himself at the, at the beginning of chapter 23. Uh, he's, he's, he gets a message. You'll, you'll notice all throughout these chapters, messengers are popping around all over the place. There are scouts and messengers bringing messages to David and to Saul. And there's, there's just a whole lot of intelligence gathering that's going on in this, in, this, in this little back and forth. And the Philistines have attacked Caleb and are robbing the threshing floors. It's a raid. Now, what we just saw in the previous chapter is that Saul has been pursuing David and Saul has just slaughtered the priests of the Lord. And meanwhile, while Saul is slaughtering the priests, David is defending Judah from the Philistines and protecting the last priest of Yahweh. 
Abiathar. Now, having a priest around is rather helpful because when the priest is there, he's got the ephod, and that means you can inquire of the Lord. And really, verse 6 is the key to our, to our passage because at the end of chapter 22, we hear that Abiathar had fled from the slaughter of the priests, and now we hear in verse 6 that he brings an ephod in his hand. And you might say, well, what's this all about? Well, the ephod contains the urim and the thummim, and when you inquire of the Lord, it appears that you ask basically a yes or no question, or at least a question with only two answers. Um, and the priest, reaches into, the priest reaches into the ephod and pulls out the answer. If it's Urim, it's the first one, or if it's Thumim, it's the second one. Something, something like that appears to be the case. It's sort of like casting lots, but this is the method that God has appointed in the Old Testament of inquiring after him. And so David can trust that the answer will be from God. Now, you might think, wow, wouldn't that be kind of cool uh, if we had something like this available for inquiring after the will of God? Now, also remember that King Saul had access to this same thing. So it's, there's, a, there's a way in which it's not enough to have this, ooh, I can know what God's will is. In order for this to work, you actually have to fear God more than you fear man. Oh, and you also have to be the Lord's anointed. That helps too. Part of it is knowing who you are and where you are in the story. You and I are not the Messiah. So it's worth saying. Probably obvious to all of us. We are not the Christ. Thanks be to God for that. But that's where we are not the center of God's purposes for history. It's actually rather comforting to know that we have, we have a, an important place, yes. We have our, our little, each, each person has our own place, place and part to play in what God is doing. But God's purposes for all of redemptive history do not hinge on us. It's kind of a relief. But further, yeah, and ordinary Israelites, for instance, did not have access to the Urim and Thummim every day for making everyday decisions. It's not like you can just say, oh, let's go ask the priest. Um, rather, we have something better than Urim and Thummim. We don't just have a Beathar with an ephod. We have Jesus, the great high priest, who has entered the heavenly holy of holies and who has joined us to himself that he might bring us to the Father. And we are seated with him in the heavenlies. We have a high priest who welcomes us and sympathizes with us in our time of need. So actually, we have something even better than David did. And so when David hears that the Philistines are attacking Calah, robbing the threshing floors, he inquires of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord answered, go and save Calah. Now, it's worth noting that the first answer is one of those classic, you know, if, you're familiar, if you're familiar with all the, the stories of, of the, the oracles in the Greek world, uh, you always got to be careful. Sort of The answer that you get from the oracle could mean lots of things. David's men seem to realize this answer isn't all that clear. Go and save Kayla. Okay, does that mean we're going to win? Or, no, we're supposed to go, but what happens when we get there? Go and save them, but what, what if we don't? There, 
they're hiding in the hills, they're hiding in the caves. If, if they're afraid to face Saul, how can they face the Philistines? And so they okay, try again, ask more, are we going to win this one? Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. The Lord's anointed was concerned for his men. And the Lord honors that concern by giving a very clear answer. Yes, I will give the Philistines into your hand. So they go, and God delivers Kela into their hands. Now, uh, here, David is doing what the king is supposed to be doing. David is rescuing an Israelite city from their enemies and uh, doing what the king is supposed to do. Now, of course, one problem with this is that now Saul knows exactly where they are. The irony between verses 4 and 7 is not accidental. The Lord says to David, I will give the Philistines into your hand. And now Saul says to himself, God has given David into my hand. Uh, one of these don't count your providences before they're hatched. Yeah. Saul thinks he sees the hand of God at work. The hand plays an important role in our passage. Uh, David hears that, that Saul will come after him, and so David again inquires of the Lord, will Saul come to Keilah? Yes, he will. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into the hand of Saul? Yes, they will. Now, it's also worth noting here how this is a case of Saul's own sin coming home to roost. If Saul had not slaughtered the priests in chapter 22 at Nob, Abiathar would not have fled to David with the ephod. And so now David can inquire of the Lord in a way that he couldn't have before. He might have remained in Keilah, trusting that his fellow Judahites here would protect him. But as it is, the murder of the priests comes back to haunt Saul. And if you think of the end of Saul's life, coming back to haunt Saul is a very appropriate way of putting it. And so David flees into the wilderness of Ziph. And though Saul sought him, God did not give him into his hand. Again, we keep seeing the hand at work. Uh, these two chapters of 1 Samuel contain 20 references to the hand, either Saul's hand or David's hand, or in verse 6, the ephod in Abiathar's hand. But then, just kind of out of the blue, Jonathan shows up. Now, Saul is seeking diligently for David, but cannot seem to find him. Jonathan rose and went to David at Horash. Now, I mean, you can, you can easily imagine how this happens. Obviously, when David's scouts see Saul's men coming, they're like, okay, David, go that way. But, of course, they all know that Jonathan is on David's side. So when Jonathan com comes, apparently like, by himself or maybe with just a couple friends, they're like, okay, Jonathan, he's over here. So you, you can see this is not surprising. But at this little-known little meeting here in chapter 23, we see the, the final meeting and indeed the final covenant making between Jonathan and David. It's worth noting that the first time Jonathan made a covenant, Jonathan cut a covenant with David because Jonathan was the superior. He's the crown prince. David's a commoner. Indeed, as David said in chapter 20, verse 8, 
you, Jonathan, have brought your servant, David, into a covenant of the Lord with you. David had clearly recognized Jonathan as his superior. But here it says in verse 18 that the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Now that's the language of a treaty between equals. Part of it is that Jonathan has surrendered any claim to the throne. He treats David now as his equal. Technically, Jonathan is a crown prince. And what is David? As the Lord's anointed, effectively, crown prince. They're both in exactly the same position as potential heirs to the same throne. And so they are, Jonathan sees David as, as, as his peer, as his equal. But Jonathan has renounced his claim in favor of David. And so while Saul, his father, is pursuing David and trying to kill him, Jonathan strengthens David's hand in God. Once again, the hand plays an important role. God gave the Philistines into David's hand, but would not give David into Saul's hand. So now Jonathan, rather than give David into Saul's hand, betraying David like everyone else, strengthens David's hand in God. There are two hands in our passage, David's hand and Saul's hand. And Jonathan has clearly chosen which hand he will serve. Do not fear, he says, the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. Now, this is in the middle of the section where everybody is betraying David. David saves the men of Calah, but they're ready to hand him over to Saul. The men of Ziph literally betray David, and Saul, his king, is trying to kill him. And so David, with his 600 men, is scrambling around the wilderness, trying to keep one step ahead of Saul. And here comes Jonathan, my best friend, and he strengthens my hand in God. Don't worry, David. God will not give you into the hand of my father. You see, when, when Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he's calling us to be like Jonathan to renounce our own kingdoms, our own ideas of what is most important, and submit ourselves to him. If you think about this in terms of where we are in our lives today, things are not the way they should be. There's all sorts of problems in our culture, in our own lives. In, when, we, when we get focused on how can, how can I fix things, we wind up forgetting what Jesus is doing. Don't fret. Don't be anxious. There's a way in which waiting on the Lord means, well, think about David. I'm supposed to be king, so what should I be doing right now? Wait on the Lord. Saul is on the throne for now. So, he will not rule forever. In the same way, as we think about all the problems in our day, all the problems in our life. These things will not last forever. What will? The word of the Lord endures forever. Trust in God and stand still and see the salvation of your God. And when the time comes to walk, it'll be clear.
David is now in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and the, the Ziphites don't appear to like him much. They, no reason is given. Maybe they're just loyal to the king. So they play Judas and come to Saul and reveal David's whereabouts. Judas is a good analogy here. The, the Ziphites come to the ruling power in Israel and offer to hand over the, the Christ, whose very presence is a threat to the ruling powers. You know, the chief priests in Jesus' day were the Lord's anointed, and they eagerly accepted the offer of treason by the one who could give the Messiah into their hand. Because it is only through suffering, through trial and temptation, that Messiah can be made perfect. As Hebrews says, he was perfected through what he suffered. In one sense, you could say that when you look back at Saul, Saul walked a rather easy road to glory. He became king without any noticeable suffering. I'm not saying he never suffered. I'm just saying the book of Samuel never reports it. The point that First Samuel is making, and making clearly, is that the only sort of king that you want is a king who has suffered, a king who has endured affliction and understands our misery. So David and his men are, are in the wilderness, and, and Saul is after him, and, and as Saul is catching up, he gets a message that the Philistines are raiding. Chapter 23 had started with David saving Kegah from the Philistine raiders, now the Philistine raiders save David from Saul. It's a familiar upside-down story that you often see in Scripture, that Egypt, in the book of, of, of Exodus, this is the, the land of, of cursing and death, but it had been a refuge for the people of God in Joseph's day. Now, so you have the, the Philistines becoming an ironic benefactor to David, both now and later. It's worth remembering. God will defeat both his and our enemies. Until then, he will use them to accomplish the salvation of his people. One of my favorite 20th century stories is the story of Mao Zedong, who is responsible for more people being saved than any evangelist of the 20th century. Billy Graham doesn't come anywhere close to Mao Zedong. You might say, well, Mao Zedong, yeah, he was the chairman of the Communist Party who sort of totally devastated China, right? Yes, exactly. He didn't like Christianity very much. No, no, he didn't. But what did he do? He so devastated Chinese culture and so obliterated their traditional religions that by trying to persuade them all to become atheists, he left them with nothing to believe in, nothing to hope in. And so now the millions and tens of millions and who knows how many millions of Christians there are in China are there because of Mao Zedong. How, I, mean, I, don't, I don't even know how to say thanks be to God. I can say thanks be to God, but for him, it's harder. But what he did was he created a situation where millions of people came to, know, came to know Jesus. So when you think about all of the awful things that are going on in our day, don't be so surprised if a generation from now, your children or grandchildren get to say, wow, God used the Philistines. God used Chairman Mao. God used all sorts of awful things that we never would have thought were, could be any good come out of it to accomplish his purposes. If we have paid even the slightest attention to what God has revealed in David and far more clearly in our Lord Jesus, then we should be fearless 
what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? If God brought Jesus through suffering to glory and has made us partakers with him, then why should cross or trial grieve me? So when Saul returns, he's like, okay, David's now out and then Gedi. So he takes uh, 3,000 men and chases David and his 600 men in the wilderness of En Gedi. And as he's chasing him, he, he needed to relieve himself, and so he goes into a nearby cave. And David's men are like, ah, this is the day. It's time to walk. It's time to act. He's right there. Just take him down. Now, maybe they're well-intentioned, but if you think about it, this is the same sort of request the disciples made. Shall we call down fire from heaven on the Samaritan village? Wouldn't that be a great idea, Jesus? They do not understand how the kingdom comes. Now, they remember Ehud. Ehud killed Eglon, the king of Moab, to deliver Israel from a tyrant. Assassination is a great political strategy, right? But Saul is not a foreign tyrant. He's a brother. He's a Messiah. He's the Lord's anointed, Mashiach, anointed one. And so David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, it's always possible that assassination could have worked politically, though I suspect David won an awful lot of support from those who mattered most, the faithful, when they saw how he waited on the Lord. Because David is content to wait on the Lord and do what is right. And it is not right to strike down the Lord's anointed. For that matter, it says that David's heart afterward struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Why is he so devastated about this? He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, even cutting off a corner of his robe. Maybe he remembered the story of of how Samuel's robe had been torn and the tearing of the robe signifying the tearing of, of this kingdom from Saul. So, indeed, for David to cut a corner off of Saul's robe suggests that David is in rebellion against Saul. He's like, oh, no, that's not what I want to be saying here. I need to show respect for the Lord's anointed, to honor the office of Messiah, the anointed king. Now, verse 7 is translated a little bit too gently in most English translations. It says, David persuaded his men with these words. Well, um, persuaded is not a good translation. The word means to tear apart. This is the word used when Samson tears the lion apart with his bare hands. So yes, this is more of a metaphorical meaning. It it doesn't appear that uh, David did not tear his men apart with his hands. He tore them apart with his words. But he tore them apart with his words. He's telling them, no, this is not the right way to think about the Lord's anointed. And indeed, after he rebukes his men, at the very least, David rebuked his men if you want to, if, if you want, if, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And then David comes out of the cave and acknowledges Saul's authority, calling him my Lord the King in verse 8. And David asks him, why is... Why are you listening to lies? If I was trying to kill you, I could have. See, I got a corner of your robe right here. 
but I will not put out my hand against the, my Lord, for he is the Lord's Mashiach, Messiah. And David calls upon God as witness. May the Lord judge between us. God gave you into my hand, and I spared your life. If God were to give me into your hand, what would be my fate? David makes clear. May the Lord avenge me against you. I will not avenge myself. My hand shall not be against you. David understands. When, when God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, God will make all things right. Notice that even the king, even the Lord's anointed, and perhaps especially the king, especially the Lord's anointed, should not seek vengeance for himself. David will bring justice for others, but not for himself. David will wait upon the Lord to render his verdict. It can be tempting to try to sort of vindicate ourselves. But David says, no, I will not do that. And notice Saul's response. Is this your voice, my son David? Yeah. You are more righteous than I. You have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. Plainly, David does not view Saul as his enemy, as Saul acknowledges. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? You, you could have killed me, and you didn't. Saul recognizes this, and he sees David is in the right. I am in the wrong. Now, we've, we've seen this before with Saul. Saul recognizes the truth, but then he forgets. He does not fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we fear God, we do not fear man. And when we fear man, we do not fear God. And it's only when we fear God that we are able to love others, even our enemies. When we fear man, we are not able to love others, and especially our enemies. And momentarily, Saul sees clearly, and so speaks clearly. May the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And so he asked that David will swear that he not cut off his offspring. And since David already has a covenant with Jonathan to this effect, he's very willing to swear that oath because he has promised that he will not destroy the house of Saul because he will protect Jonathan's house. But notice that Saul says nothing about David returning, and David has no interest in returning. David will wait in the wilderness until the Lord makes a way. So as we've been going through David's time in the wilderness, we've been seeing the ways in which David's temptations in the wilderness parallel Israel's temptations in the wilderness and actually connects beautifully with what Pastor Pinnaker preached this morning on the temptations of Jesus in the, in the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. And the one we see tonight is particularly the offer to give him all the kingdoms of the earth if only you will bow down to me. Isn't that what David was offered? David, if you take the path of vengeance, if you take the path of vindicating yourself, if you take the path of doing your will, establishing your kingdom, making, taking, t t kill Saul, 
and you could have the kingdom now. But David says, no, I know who I am in the story, and that's not me. My calling, David says, as the Lord's anointed, is to wait on the Lord. He has promised, and he will do it. As we face situations in our lives where we are called to trust God, there are times when there's a time to act, absolutely. And, but when you're waiting on the Lord, when you're coming to him with your situation, with your issue, the issue that you're, you're, you're praying about, it'll be clear when it's time to act. Sometimes I know it's really frustrating to hear pastors say that. Oh, it'll be clear. It's not clear right now. I, right, right. It's not clear right now. That's okay. It doesn't have to be clear right now. If it was clear right now, you'd know what to do. If you don't know what to do, that means it's not time yet. Which just means pray more and keep bringing it to God. And when the time comes, it'll be clear because the Red Sea will part. It is time to go. And it'll be equally clear that, no, actually, if I kill this guy, then his blood is on my hands. Uh, that's not a good idea. <laughs> I mean, sort of like, that's also clear. It's very clear. To me. Notice, David is not in the least bit wondering, what should I do here? Because he fears God. Oh, by the way, this is kind of the important part in all of this. He has to fear God. If you don't fear God, then you're going to be running in the wrong direction anyway. So, yeah, fear God and then trust him that when it's time, you'll know. So let's ask him for that. Lord, help us because uh, we, we don't fear you nearly enough and we too often run our own paths and think we know what we're doing and so we leave you behind. And so not surprisingly, we find ourselves all in a mess. And we thank you for what you show us in your anointed one, David, who is, who is running out into the wilderness and following you as he dodges Saul. And when Saul is brought into his hand, he walks away because he fears you. Lord, we thank you that you show us this, and we thank you that you have shown us this even more clearly and beautifully in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who triumphed over all the powers of sin, death, and the devil, that through his own death, through his own bearing in his own body the wrath and curse that was due to us for sin, yet you, you won the great victory in him, and you have brought us to yourself that we might be yours forever. Help us as we follow Jesus, that we might have that same mind that it was ours in him, that though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being found in human form. He humbled himself even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And you have highly exalted him through his resurrection, through his ascension to your right hand, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So help us to live with that mind, that we would not be afraid of what may happen around us, but we may have confidence that you will continue the work you've begun in Jesus, that you have begun in him and in us, that we might be conformed to his likeness in his sufferings, that we might also be conformed to his resurrection glory. Help us to, to live this, to 
trust you. And that in these situations we face where we don't know what to do, help us to simply hold fast to you, to wait upon you, to trust you, to fear you. And then that you will show us when it's time and what we need to say and do when it's time to say it and do it. And until that day, Lord, help us to trust you, to live and walk by faith, not by sight, because you have shown us the way of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.